Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? You good? Yeah, wow, what a great day at Woodburn Baptist Church. It's coming home Sunday. We have worship going on in three locations. It is the most glorious thing ever. I wish you could all walk around and see it, but then it would ruin everything if you did that. Uh, if you could just see and hear what's going on from place to place. We have a tent outside that's, that's bluegrassy right now, and, uh, and, and it is great. It is so good to celebrate together what God has done and is doing in the life of Woodburn Baptist Church. It's kind of our church anniversary, not officially, but this is when we celebrate. Our church was established in 1867, which makes us how old? Oh, come on. Nobody can do the math? 145, right? 145 years old. Yeah, 145 years old. Woodburn Baptist Church. That is exciting. That is so good. That is so good. <clears throat> Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what makes the church the church. This week I was outside talking to some of the workers who are doing construction for us. One of the guys said, y'all eating on Sunday? I said, yeah, we are. As a matter of fact, we're having lunch together on Sunday. He said, y'all having fried chicken? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, we're having fried chicken. He said, I knew it, Baptist and fried chicken go together. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, it, it kind of is. It, it, honestly, I wish it were less true. Because I wish that there were other things that we could be more known for, to be really honest. I wish there were other things that we could be more known for other than our eating, our, our fried chicken. Uh, I'll eat the fried chicken in a minute with you. I, I sure will. But, but I wish that the church could really be the church and could really understand what it is we should be known for. We started a sermon series entitled To Live as Christ, and we're going through the book of Philippians. Remember that Philippians is, is called one of the prison letters because Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he is in prison. He's in house arrest in Rome. He writes this church that he loves so much. He planted this church, and he has pastored this church, and he loves them. But he is now some 800 miles away from them, writing them a letter. And one of the things he says, leading into the passage that I'm about to read. One of the things he says is, when I hear about you, when I get word back and they tell me how things are going in Philippi, I want to hear that you guys are still really eating the fried chicken. You think? You think that's what he says? When people bring me news from Philippi, what I want to hear is that you people still bringing out the potlucks. I want to know that you people haven't lost a pound. I want to know that your arteries are so clogged with grease. Is that what he says? I want to know that you all are continuing to have good music. I just think it's all about the music, and I hope you're still using the hymnal. I, I just want to know that there's good music. That is not what he says. He doesn't say, I hope you still got good numbers. Please tell me that there's still a big number of people coming. That's not what he says. Not what he says. Now understand, the church at Philippi can get along without a pastor. Their pastor is in prison. Paul says, when I hear about you, what I want to hear is that you're still standing together with one purpose and one mind. It's unity. It's unity. The church can exist without a pastor. We could live without fried chicken, I promise you. But we cannot be the church without unity. We have to stand together, one purpose, one mind. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Philippians chapter 2, this is a amazing passage of scripture. Listen to it. Let it penetrate your heart. 
Paul's going to start with a string of questions, and all of these are rhetorical questions. What's a rhetorical question? It's a question that you ask, but everybody knows what the answer is. So when Paul starts out saying, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? What's the answer to that? Of course there is, and so this is his point. This is where he's leading them. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant, a slave, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that, say the words, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Let's stop there. I want to hear that you're standing together, Paul says. I want to know that you're standing together. What do you think keeps your typical church from standing together? What is the... the the, the true obstacle to our unity. I guess a lot of people would say it's it's the differences between us, and we're very, very different. Y'all don't understand. We got a bluegrass tent out there. You people are in the sanctuary. Your shirts are buttoned up. You've kept your shoes on. You have no idea the the redneckery that is going on out there uh, under the tent with bluegrass. I I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's amazing. But we're just different. We're just different. We have different tastes in music. Some of us are older. Some of us are younger. There are generational differences between us. There are economic differences. Some of us just make more money and and have more. We drive nicer cars than than others. I I just don't know. that There are so many ways that you could could differentiate us from one another. And I guess that from a human point of view, that, that would sound like the big obstacle to unity. The fact that we're just so different. How can we think the same and love each other and agree wholeheartedly, as Paul says, when honestly, agree wholeheartedly? We have so many different opinions about everything. Really different from each other. We're just really different from each other. But that's not the obstacle to unity. That's not the obstacle to unity. 
The reason that you and I as Christians, as members of the same church, the members that you and I aren't exactly unified, it's not because we're so different. We're very different, but honestly, that's part of what makes the church wonderful, the differences. The true obstacle to unity is selfishness. Are you listening to me? It's, it's selfishness. What keeps us from being united is not the fact that we have different opinions or, or, or different ways of seeing things. What keeps us from experiencing the perfect unity that Christ intends for us is very, very simply, we are self-centered. We're selfish. Now, there may be different degrees. Some of us may be more selfish or less selfish than others, but it's beside the point, really. This is something of human nature. Most of us are just simply selfish, from the moment we're born, we become very preoccupied with ourselves. If you've had children, what's the very first word that your child typically learns after no? Mine. Yeah. No. Mine. Yeah. Very quickly, a child becomes very preoccupied with herself, very preoccupied with himself. And many of us just simply don't grow past that. We still step out into life with a, with a, with a me, mine kind of attitude. It's really mostly about ourselves. We wake up in the morning and the first thing we ask ourselves is, what is it that I want? What do I want for breakfast? What do I want to do with my day? We tend to sort of have a very, very small little constellation where we just rotate around ourselves all day long. And we sort of like it when everybody else will do that too. We're very self-centered. Most of us really struggle with our, our selfishness. So what's the answer? How do you get selfish people not to be selfish? Any ideas? Now right here, Paul tries it. you got to give him credit for trying. Right there in verse 3, he just says, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Now I love God's word, and I love Paul, and I love telling people not to be selfish, but something tells me that's not going to be enough. Something tells me, it's just, maybe it's just me, something tells me that you can't get selfish people not to be selfish just by telling them don't be selfish. I think the selfishness, selfishness goes deeper than that. How many of you ever been out to Lover's Lane and watched the little guys play soccer? You ever been out there watch the girls and, and boys? It's a lot of fun. I'm not a sports guy. Y'all know this about me. Sometimes I try to pretend I'm interested, but I'm just not. I'm just not. I, I'm missing all of that brain hemisphere that would make me do sports. I like to sleep in front of sports, to, to, to be honest. Um, at the soccer field, I tend to watch the game, but honestly, my eyes, it's like the lights are on, but nobody's home. I forget to watch. I, I just don't. I, I don't do it. But I was there this day, and I was paying attention to this much. I saw a kid. And the ball came to him, and he just lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, this was his moment of glory. The ball just landed at his feet, and in that moment, everything came together for him. You know what I'm saying? You ever seen a moment like that? Everything the coaches had taught him, everything about his own coordination, it all just became magical. And he began to, began to carry that ball down that field like a, like a magician. It, it was amazing. It was beautiful. He was so smooth, and he was fast as lightning. The problem? He was going to the wrong goal. Yeah, going to the wrong goal. So here it is. He gets the ball, and he's just running, and he's carrying the ball, and people just fall back. His own teammates start screaming at him, hey, stop! 
stop. But he doesn't hear that. What he hears is go, go. Somehow in his head, he just hears the noise and he thinks everybody loves me. Everybody's cheering me on. The whole other team just stood back. I mean, you know, if a fool's going to score a a goal, you know, let him do it. So they just stood back. He's flying down the field. Now the coaches are running after him. Everybody's raised, waving their arms, screaming, stop, stop. The boy's mother's pulling her hair out. Stop, stop. How in the world do you get a kid like that in this moment that he thinks it's glory? He thinks that this is his moment of glory. He's thinking that he'll be on the cover of Sports Illustrated in the morning. He is thinking that he is magnificent. He is thinking that he is everything. He's thinking that he's the star of the show. He doesn't understand. He's about 10 yards from disaster and humiliation. How in the world do you get him to stop? Well, honestly... With 200 of us going, stop, stop, eventually he just sort of stopped. He just stopped right, right before he blew it, he stopped. You may be like that kid. This is what I want you to understand. You may be like that kid. And with your whole life, you really might be running toward the wrong goal. This is what I'm trying to say to you. You may be running toward the wrong goal. And the goal that you're chasing, the goal that you're running toward is the goal of yourself. You're all about yourself. You're trying to achieve some sort of glory, some sort of pleasure for yourself. Your life is about you. Your life is about your opinions. You really enjoy being right. You really enjoy being the center of things. You really enjoy having people like you and and respect you and appreciate you. Your life is sort of all about you. And so you're rushing as hard and as fast as you can every day toward yourself, toward the goal of self. And this is our dilemma. How do we get a person who's rushing so hard in the wrong direction with their lives? How do we get a person whose focus is absolutely opposite of of true focus? How do we get that person to stop and pause and turn around? Am I making sense? I'm asking, how do you get selfish people to stop being selfish? How do you get them to turn around and, and, and find a new focus for their lives? Because that's Paul's next approach. He, he tries to give a new focus. You see, my focus is me. Your focus is you. And, and so perhaps one of the ways we can get past our selfishness is if we can learn to focus somewhere not ourselves. Now, Paul's big focus for the church is its purpose. Purpose. And there's nothing truer to say than to say that the one thing that truly unifies us together is the gospel. It is the gospel. It is the only source of our unity. It is the only thing that we have to celebrate today. It is the only thing that's made Woodburn Baptist Church's 145 years worth living. The gospel. It is the gospel that saves us, the gospel that transforms us. It's the gospel that gives us the hope of heaven. Everything is about the gospel. So when Paul says, I want to know that you're standing together with one purpose, one mind, that purpose is the good news of Christ. That purpose is the gospel. It is always the gospel. 
And in any church, this would include it, if anything begins to take more focus than the gospel gets. If anything begins to capture our better passions, anything stronger than the gospel. You understand? If anything takes the place of the gospel, then the church begins to fall apart. It's always about the gospel. It's always about what Christ has done. Always about what Christ is doing in us. Everything's about the gospel. Paul says, I just want to know that you're standing together with one purpose, one mind, and the purpose is the gospel. It's the gospel. If you've ever been on a great team, a sports team or, or, or a team at work, if you've ever been with a group of people that worked well together, You've experienced the way a common purpose, a common goal, a common task or job brings people together in a wonderful way. And this is what Paul is saying in a way that the church is like. We have a job. We have a great commission together. And that is truly what brings us together. It is the purpose. It is the gospel. At Woodburn Baptist Church, this continues to be, of course, our purpose. It continues to be the source of our unity. We want to continue to preach Christ and Christ alone and Christ crucified. It's all about Christ. And we want to preach Christ in such a way where people who are far away from him will hear of him and learn to know him and open their hearts to him. From Indonesia to the trailer park across the street, we want people to know Jesus. And we want people to come to Jesus. And as they come to Jesus, we want to start new churches for them all over the place. Wherever the Lord leads, we want to plant churches because we want people to come to Christ. I mean, it's, it's our purpose. It's, it's, it's the purpose. But even that, Paul says, once you're standing together in the purposes of the gospel, once you're united by the gospel, he also continues to to try to shift the focus. He says, I want you to consider one another. So now it it is the gospel message, that's everything, but it's also the, the people of the gospel, the community of the gospel, the body of Christ. Paul says, I want you to think about each other. I want you to look past your own interests and get interested in one another. I want you to consider others better than yourselves. Let that sink in. Do you like that? Do you like that language? Consider other people better than you. I know you people. You don't like that language. You don't like that. If, if you thought that I thought I was better, you'd say, what, you think you're better than me? You think you're better? She thinks she's better. Boy, that is not the language that tends to inspire us. We don't like when somebody thinks they're better. And truly what Paul is saying here is, is, is more complicated, more complex than that. He's not just simply saying, just think that, that you're lower and everybody's better. Paul is really saying you, you have to consider other people's needs as more important than yours. You, you need to consider other people's needs, what they need. Consider their needs more important than yours. It's funny today because I, I worship with you all every single Sunday, and, and I love you more than anything, y'all know that. But I know where some of you normally sit, and I know where you're sitting today, and I know why you're sitting where you're sitting today. Do you know why you're sitting where you're sitting today? Of course you do. You've already thought through how the lunch line will flow. Am I right? Not calling any names. But you've thought this through. You're, you, this is not your first fried chicken lunch. 
You've already thought through how the line will flow, and you have positioned yourself, and God bless you. Enjoy it, enjoy it. I understand that. It's, it's human nature. But this is exactly what Paul says in the church we have to try to learn to fight against inside ourselves. It's the idea that my needs would come before yours. No, Paul says you just always consider other people's needs first. You just you want everybody else's needs to come first. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's always about others. 145-year-old church, none of us have been around the whole time, although some of us look like it. Some of us feel like it. Nobody has been around since the beginning anymore. 145 years as a church. But some of us who've been around long enough can, can tell you something about the kind of people that have always been at Woodburn Baptist Church. I can tell you about Robert Marshall. Robert Marshall was <clears throat> one of the men that I felt closest to when I came back as pastor right away. I love, uh, I love Alpha, and, and I continue to love Robert's memory. Robert's an extraordinary man, extraordinary man. The last conversation I had with Robert Marshall was at the hospital just before he died. And I said, Robert, what are you hoping for? How should we pray? Robert said, well, I want a cure. I want to live. And then he said this. Robert said, I don't know what my calling is if it's not to do something for somebody else. Those were the last words Robert Marshall said to me. I don't even know what my life's about if it's not about doing something for somebody else. It's, that's the servant's heart that Paul says should be in all of us. Robert was one of those guys who would raise a garden and then just give it all away. Just delight to give all of it away. It was Robert Marshall. You ever heard of Nan Hayden? Nan was a, a large woman. Don't tell her I said it when we get to heaven, but she was a large woman and a wonderful woman. Nan, uh, Nan talked like she was from somewhere else. She was from Woodburn just like the rest of us. And again, I'm from Woodburn, and this is how a Woodburn person talks right here. This is how it sounds. But Nan talked like this. She talked like a southern woman from, from, from gone with the wind. She just talked these big, big syllables, and every word, you know, had like extra syllables. And she was so much fun, and she was wonderful. And Nan in those days would sit in the back of the church, and when somebody new would walk in, she'd welcome them. Now, she did not get up, because this is Nan. She didn't get up. If you were new and you walked in, she'd just go, she'd motion for you to come to her. She'd motion, and you go to her because you just always do what Nan would say. And so she'd call you over and she'd say, tell me, where are you from? Where are you from? Are you new here? Here? You see, two syllables. Are you new here? And then she'd tell them where to sit. Nan would tell new people where to sit. And it was always sit down right here by me. Always sit by me. Nan was wonderful at loving and welcoming people. The other thing about Nando is if you lived in Woodburn, she drove this gigantic blue car about the size of this middle section of pews. About the size of the middle section of pews. And on any given day, Nan's car was parked in front of the homes where people were sick or shut in. Nan visited shut-ins and old folks every day. Her car was always parked in front of somebody's house that needed a visit or that needed food. That was just Nan. 
In those days, our deacons used to say, hey, my job's pretty easy. I just tell Nan to tell me if anybody gets sick, let me know. Our deacons knew that Nan took care of everybody. Understand, it's, it's that heart that just puts other people first. That's the kind of people that, that I've always known at Woodburn Baptist Church. Uh, Evelyn Balance, oh my goodness, Evelyn Balance taught school at Woodburn when the school was over there where the playground is. Back in the day, of course, everybody in Woodburn farmed, and uh, the Balances had a big farm, and, and at certain times of the year, uh, other farmhands would come in to help with the harvest, and, and often African Americans from the community would come, and everybody knew each other, everybody was neighbors, and people in Woodburn loved each other. And, but at the same time, in a lot of houses in those days, when it was time for dinner, you know, dinner's the big noon meal in the country, when it's time for dinner, the farmhands would come in and the, the white folks would go eat at the table in the house and the black men would go out under the shade trees and eat outside. That, that was the day, but that wasn't Evelyn Valance. Evelyn, back in those days, would walk out and say, no, no, nobody eats outside here. In this house, everybody's equal. She brought everybody into the table. Evelyn didn't need a civil rights movement or, or any sort of laws for desegregation. The gospel was in her heart. And so it was natural for her to love everybody and treat everybody with the same Christian love. You understand? It's the kind of attitude that Paul says we should all have. Woodburn's just always had folks like that. James Stevens was coming home from the hospital before he died, coming home from the hospital in, in later stages of cancer. And on his way home, not after he got home, but on his way home, he made him stop so he could fix the rail on the front of the parsonage next door. I mean, on his way home from the hospital, did you understand the, the kind of other focus that, that I'm describing here? Do you remember Abby Cummings? Abby was a little girl in our church just a few years ago who died of cancer. Uh, do y'all remember some of those Sunday nights when, when uh, Dwight would just carry her into church and, and she'd be on the back row? Because that's how desperately she wanted to be with us. That's just how much she wanted to be at church. She wanted to be with us. Do you remember that last barn service that Abby came to when she wore that red, <laughs> that red cocktail dress or evening gown? And she sang that song, was it Shania Twain, I Feel Like a Woman, something like that. It's not in your hymnal, don't look. Um, <laughs> Abby sang a... I feel like a woman, dun, dun. You remember that song? Oh. She just wanted to see you smile. Woodburn has had these examples of people that were just so self-forgetful. You know what I mean? Just self-forgetful. It was never about what they were going through. It was never about their suffering or what they had or didn't have. It was just really always more about what other people needed. And as long as there was somebody out there who needed something, then they knew what their life was about. And I'll just be really, really honest with you. As, as a person who has spent now the largest part of my life in this congregation, I, I just, I just want to say that people like that have made me want to be more like that. You know, you know what I mean? When, when I see a person who is 
so very generous, when I see people who are uh, so unselfish, it makes me want to be less selfish. It, it makes me want to be more focused on others. I, I see your generosity, church, and I want to be more generous. I'm just saying the truest thing I know how to say. But I also want to make it clear that, that when Paul wants to give us an example of what humility, an example of what service looks like, he does not give us a human example. So truly, although I could go on and on and on about the, the good, humble, serving kinds of people we've had at Woodburn Baptist, the, the true example is the example we have in Christ. And this is what Paul says. It starts in verse 6. You've got to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, that though he was the very nature God, okay, you've got to let that sink in. Jesus was from all eternity God in the flesh, God the Son, the eternal Son of God. You understand that? He was in heaven. He was exalted. He's the maker of heaven and earth. All power, all authority is his. And this is where it starts. Jesus, the very nature, the very form of God, did not consider his divine privileges as something to hold on to. Okay, we're talking about God. And what the scripture says is, is that God himself, the, the eternal son, he did not consider his identity, his power, his authority, his privileges, his prerogative. He did not consider his status as God as something he had to hold on to. And so what does he do? He pours it out. He, he gives it away. This is God here. Jesus had no obligation to do anything for any of us. We are so small and unworthy and undeserving. He's God. He's holy, majestic, eternal. There is no way to describe the, the distance between him and us, only that he loved us. And by his mercy was willing to lay it all down, give it all away. Forget everything that had to do with being God off in heaven. And he came down to be one of us on earth. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He took on the form of a servant. That's what Paul wants you to hear. He took on the form of a servant. What's a servant do? A servant serves. A servant meets the needs of others. So Jesus is the one who, even in the very nature, very form of God, left all of that so that he could come down and do for us what we needed to have done for ourselves. We needed a Savior. We needed sins forgiven. His is a story of, of, of giving and not getting. His is a story of moving down, not moving up. You understand? And Paul says, that's the attitude you've got to have in yourselves. You've got to be a servant too. What do you think about that, serving people? Honestly, I know you people. You like to help each other. Go ahead, raise your hand. You like to help people? Raise your hand. I like to help people. Yeah, I like to help people. Yeah, I like to help people. I like to help people to a point, to a point. Now, what's my point? It's probably the same as yours. I like to help people all the way up to a point. And what's that point where I don't like helping you anymore? When you start taking me for granted, when you stop saying thank you, I love to help people. I love to serve people who appreciate me. 
When people say, Brother Tim, thank you so much. I, I, I love what you did for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I noticed what you did, and I appreciate what you did. I, I, I drink that up. With, you understand? I love that, and you do too. I, I love to help people when they seem to notice what I do and appreciate my help. I don't like being a servant so much when people start treating me like a servant. Make sense? In college, I worked my way through as a waiter at a restaurant downtown. We got lots of business people from the businesses around the square in Bowling Green. The thing about being a waiter, and I actually love being a waiter. I, I would do it today. I love being a waiter. Um, the thing about it was the secretaries, and I'm not being sexist, it's not something about women or men, but the secretaries were typically really rude to me, and I figured it's because other people were rude to them all day long, and they finally found somebody that they got to be rude to. But oh my goodness, I love waiting tables, I love serving people, but sometimes they were so rude to me, and that's the point where you just want to take the water glass and go, Shh. I mean, you just really could. I just could, I just want to take the food, and pff, I mean, ugh. There was this lady who used to come in, and on her worst days, she would call me boy. I wear a name tag for a reason, and it doesn't say boy. She'd say, boy. <sighs> boy. I'll give you a boy. I'll tell you that. Ooh. Paul says, let the same attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that being in the very nature of God, did not consider his divine privilege as something to, to hold on to, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Even to the point of obedience to death on a cross. See, the point is, Jesus didn't have a point past which he would no longer be a servant. He, he was obedient all the way to death. And, and let's just be honest enough to say he was serving us, and we are, of all people, most ungrateful. We, we, we're not worthy of what he has done for us. But he served. He, he provided for us what, what we needed, even to the point of death on a cross. So, I say that to, to say this, the real test for you, if you wonder, you know, do I have a servant's heart? Is that heart that was in Christ, is that in me? Then here's the thing. If you really want to know if you have a true Christian servant's heart, the, the test of that is how you respond when people start treating you like a servant. Understand? The, the real test of whether or not you have a servant's heart is how you begin to respond when people will treat you like a servant. When they stop saying thank you, when they don't appreciate you, when they take you for granted, what do you do then? Because Jesus served all the way to the point of death. How do you get selfish people to be unselfish? Well, you can hold up an example like the example of Jesus, but there's something about that even that it just almost makes me shut down because I think I, I can't do that. That's not in me. And honestly, it's not in you either. We don't mind helping people, our friends. We don't mind helping our families. We don't mind helping a stranger even. But, but, but just to serve, to put everybody's needs ahead of our, ourselves, how can we live like that? That's not in us. The reason so much selfishness comes out of me every day is because that's what's in me. 
truly. That is the content of my sinful, depraved heart. I am a selfish, self-centered person as a sinner. And so are you, all of us. All of us are this way. So tell me that I have a gospel purpose and tell me that I've got this example in Christ and show all these wonderful earthly examples and still, I don't know if I can be that. I can promise you that I can't be that. I, I just can't do that. I can't become something I'm not. So, so here's the key. It's found here. Verse 13. For God is working in you. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. I can't do it. We're talking about change here. We're talking about transformation. And anytime you have to start talking about change, anytime you have to start talking about becoming a different kind of person, all of a sudden you're talking about a spiritual category now. If you could change, if you could be unselfish on your own, you would already be unselfish. If you could be a better man, you'd already be a better man. If you could make yourself a different kind of woman, you'd already be a different kind of woman. You don't have the power in you to get past yourself. You don't have the power in you to change yourself. We need a power from outside ourselves. And this is what the Bible says. God is working in you. God is working in you, giving you the two things, the desire and the power. The desire and the power to do what pleases him. What do you think is the most important, the desire or the power? I, I don't know. I feel like they go together. If I don't have desire, then all the power in the world won't change me, and and if I don't have the power, then all of the want to in the world isn't going to change me either. I, I need desire and I need power. But for most of us in this room today, it's going to start with desire. It's going to start with desire. You have to see that example of Jesus and have something in you that wants to be like him, that wants to be like Christ you got to have some desire to follow him. You understand? You, you can't be a Christian if you don't want Christ. And, and you can't become like Christ if you have no desire whatsoever to walk in his ways. The desire is so very, very important. So come back to this verse with me and understand a, a very simple truth. God is at work in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So very honestly... If in your heart, you really don't have a desire to be like Christ, you really don't have a desire to serve like Christ, to empty yourself and get over yourself and, and, and be about Christ, if you really don't have that desire, then God is not at work in you. Understand? God is at work in you, the verse says, to give you the desire and the power. If you don't have the desire, then God is not at work in you. And if God is not at work in you, then God is not in you. Are you hearing me? If you don't have that desire, then God is not at work in you. And if he's not at work in you, he's not in you. It doesn't get any plainer than this. 
Those of us who live for ourselves and we have no intention of changing, we, we're, we're stubborn. We're going to live this way no matter what anybody says. I'm telling you, that's a dangerous sort of spiritual sign. No desire whatsoever to become like Christ. If you lack that desire, he's not at work in you. If he's not at work, he's, he's not in you. But he wants to be in you. He didn't leave heaven and come down and humble himself and take on the form of a servant and all the way to the point of death on the cross. He, he did this so that he could live inside you and, and, and go to work in you. He wants to set you free from yourself. He wants to make you change directions. You're running hard as you can toward the wrong goal for your life. You need to turn. You need to turn around before it's too late and, and find the real focus of your life. It, it is Christ. It is the gospel. It's all about others. If you have no desire to be like Christ, then you really have to question whether or not he's in you at all. But if the topic is unity, if what we're talking about today is unity, then understand this. If, if, if God is at work in you, and if he is also at work in me, if he's in you and if he's in me, then we're going to stand together. If he is in you and he is in me, then what could there possibly be that would drive us apart? Paul says, whatever I hear about your church, just let them tell me that you're standing together. One purpose and one mind. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, we're just so selfish. Lord, we cannot get over ourselves. We can't get past ourselves. Lord, we don't even seem to notice others. We don't even seem to see their needs. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes. Help us to see you, oh Christ, and to want to be like you and to want to walk in your ways and to have you at work in us, to, to give us the desire and the power to be holy as you are holy. Lord Jesus, give us that desire to be more like you. There's a world of people around us, a world in need, and we're so focused on ourselves, continuing to rush toward the goal of satisfying ourselves, Lord, that we never see the people along the way that we pass. We never stop to look them in the face and understand we probably have no other calling in our lives other than to do something for somebody else. Oh, Lord Jesus, you've given us such a tremendous example in Christ, but also examples in this church of people who just forget all about themselves for the sake of others. Lord Jesus, make us all to be like that. Make us all to be servants of one another. Make us all to be humble. Make us all to forget all about ourselves. Focus completely on you, oh Jesus. We know how much you love the world, how much you love others. Teach us, Lord, to love as you love. And Lord, I pray that this church, Lord, will continue to stand together in unity, one purpose, one mind, one love, which we find in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.